Well, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to James. I encourage you to turn to Philippians. Sorry, not James. We just read from James, but Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four. We are almost done. Next Sunday will be the final sermon of the book of Philippians, which probably isn't all that exciting for you, but it is for me because it will be the first sermon, first book I've ever preached completely through. So that's, um, that's encouraging. That's well, exciting for me. So I'll stop now. Okay. Um, let, me, uh, let me read the text and then, and then we'll pray. Uh, James, James, Philippians chapter 4, 10 to 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, illumine our minds now by your spirit to understand your word. And cause it, Lord, to go deep into our hearts that it might remain there. And that we might walk in this truth this morning. And we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Philippians uh, 4, verses 4 through 7, and, and we looked at specifically the whole idea of combating anxiety with prayer. And we basically talked about how we live, as some intellectuals would describe our society, in an age of anxiety, of an age of anxiety. There is more reason to be anxious today due to the amount of information we can absorb than there was let's say, 800 years ago. But I would also say that this age that we live in, we could also describe as the age of advertisement. We live in the age of advertisement. Every day you are bombarded with information that is calling for your response. See, advertisement has a presupposition. And that presupposition is this, that we as humans are fundamentally, in our very nature, consumers. And so the the way to find happiness, the way to find joy, is to consume. You see, advertisement assumes that we're naturally discontent, but through advertisement, it also makes us more discontent. Because then we start to desire things that you would never have desired if you didn't see. I I always find it funny when Gracie and I will, we sometimes just go to the mall and walk around or we get those little hot dogs because we love them. Um, It's amazing how, you know, you don't have any needs and you walk by a store and you see something and somehow you're able to play it up in your head. I need that. But that thought would never have come if you didn't see it. Most of us don't think we're all that impacted by advertisement, but we are. We are every day being tempted with the, the idea 
that true contentment and joy can only happen if my circumstances change, if the thing that I get changes my life. Which means that learning contentment in the Christian life is a deep necessity for the times we live in. So I only have one point for us this morning, one point, and that is this, that we would strive for contentment in all circumstances, that we would strive for contentment in all circumstances. Paul in chapter 4 has been primarily concerned about how we live as Christians, Right? In chapter 2, he calls us to live lives worthy of the gospel. In chapter 4, he's, he's partly unpacking, unpacking what it looks like. He's concerned in chapter 4 that we be a virtuous people and that we live virtuous lives. That we actually be virtuous and that our conduct is virtuous. And he's shown this primarily through his exhortations in chapter 4. He, he calls us to rejoice in the Lord, to be gentle to all, to not be anxious but prayerful, to give our minds to all that is worthy of praise, to think upon these things, as he says, and to practice a godly way of life. Now here in verses 10 to 13, Paul gives no exhortation. But the implication based upon verse 9 is that we ought to follow Paul's way of life, his conduct. And so Paul here, he's, he's speaking of contentment in his own life. And, and by implication, he's calling us to live a life of contentment. Now for simplicity's sake, best way to break this passage down is in two parts. The first is Paul's joy or his rejoicing. And secondly, Paul's contentment. So first, Paul's rejoicing. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. This is the third time in Paul's letter where he directly speaks of rejoicing in the Lord. And here we see that he's specifically rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Greatly. He's praising God. And we're told what he says next, the reason for this rejoicing. What does he say? I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. We know from reading through this letter, from going through this letter as a church, that Paul loved these believers in Philippi and they also loved him. And so when Paul says here, you've revived your concern for me, he's not saying... They stopped caring about him, and now they're caring about him again. And, and you can clearly see this in what he says in the next part of verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, the reviving of your concern for me is that now you've been given opportunity and you've acted upon it. Now, we don't know why they weren't able to show concern earlier on. Because we know that Paul was with them about 10 years ago, and now it's 10 years later or so. And so we don't know why he wasn't. It's most why they weren't able to show concern. Most likely, it was simply because he was traveling. He was on his missionary journey, and now he's in prison, and so he's in one place, and, he's, and they're able to care for him. 
Now, this, this act, this opportunity they were given, we know is, of course, the sending of Epaphroditus to Paul. Epaphroditus was sent by the church to, to care for Paul's needs emotionally, spiritually, and materially. And so Paul here is rejoicing in the Lord because his brothers and sisters have shown their concern to him. And I think by way of implication, this, we're, we're just touching on this. We're going to look more at this next week in what, in what he says from verses 14 to 23. But by way of implication, we need to see this, that Paul's rejoicing in the Lord is a result of a brother and sister or several brothers and sisters simply caring for him. Which means, just think about this, that when you show concern for another, when you tangibly seek to care for your brother or your sister, you actually have the opportunity, the privilege to play a role in someone rejoicing in Christ. In other words, your caring for another will result in praise to God. Now, the second thing we see here also is Paul's contentment. Paul's contentment. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, just in in case they interpret Paul's words as, um, you know, you've revived your concern for me and, and I hope you show more concern. Paul wants to make clear that that's not his agenda in what he's about to say. He wants to show them very clearly that he's not in need. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I'm not saying I need these things to tell you that I'm in need. And then he tells us why. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. There's two things we need to see here. First... Contentment isn't something that happened to Paul overnight. It's not something that happened to Paul overnight. He says he learned this. It was a learning experience for him. It wasn't an overnight transformation. He had to cultivate this learning in his life. And it's important that we see this because I think a lot of Christians can, 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 can treat Paul like a superhuman, like he's almost sinless like Jesus. But Paul had to grow in his virtue just as the rest of us do. He had to learn contentment. It wasn't something that was natural for him, just like the rest of us. And here's the thing about learning. It always takes time. If you're a teacher here, you know that. It, it always usually entails both thoughtfulness and practice. Like what Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So contentment is something that must be learned. Paul learned it. And it's important. Jeremiah Burroughs stated, to be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. The second thing we learn from from this phrase, I have learned 
to be content in all situations is that this learned contentment was learned under all circumstances, as he says here, in whatever situation. So Paul's saying, no no matter what situation I've been placed in, I've learned to be content. Now, in, in verse 12, he further expounds his thinking by taking two opposite extremes and showing in both those two extremes he's learned contentment. So whatever situation, then he says in verse 12, look at verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. What does he mean by he knows how to be brought low? That is, he knows how to be content in humiliation. He knows how to be content in being humbled. And this is a direct connection to chapter 2, verse 8. It's the exact same verb where we speak of, where Paul writes of, Christ humbling himself and taking the form of a servant and dying a sinner's death, death even on a cross. See, Paul's saying, just as my my Savior was humiliated, I've learned to be content in humiliation. I've learned contentment in being brought low. And Paul knew this all too well. There's several places in the New Testament where he he mentions his experience, but in 1 Corinthians 4, 10-13, he says this, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul knows what it means to be humiliated. He's in prison at this very time when he writes this letter. You see, it's one thing to be content when your circumstances are stable. But when they turn on you, that's a real test of whether you're truly a content person. Poverty all of a sudden comes upon you. Your health fades drastically. The position you were hoping to get at work is given to someone else, maybe even less qualified than you. When you find out that that you're unable to have children, these are the tests in life that truly test whether we're contented people. But Paul also knows how to be content in abundance. In abundance. As he says, I've learned contentment in being brought low, but also in abounding. You know, know, I, I think we're prone to think it's easier to experience contentment when you have abundance. But in reality, I think it's often harder to be content when you've experienced abundance. Because it gives you an appetite and a craving for more. When Gracie and I were in Spain, 
we, for the most part, stayed in very, like, low level. It was, like, in between a hostel and a hotel. And um, sometimes the AC didn't work. It was not fun. Um, but because of her parents and their love for us, we got to use their timeshare at this one specific location for four nights. It was this 17th century estate in Spain. It was beautiful. And I could have just stayed there the whole time. And I got to tell you, it was hard going from that back to our one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> it was hard to be content. Though I love our one-bedroom apartment, it was truly hard to be content. Why? Because we tasted something of greatness. We wanted something of this world that was more. See, the world is so alluring, and when you taste just a little bit of it, it is so easy to actually become more discontent when you have compared to when you don't have. One must learn contentment not only in loss, but also in gain. When you experience prosperity, when your influence increases, when you advance in your career. You know, people who win the lottery are evidence of this. Studies have shown that the majority of people who win the lottery, within five years, they're already declaring bankruptcy because they don't know what to do. They went from a very simple life, and now they've gained so much overnight, it creates in them a craving that they did not actually have before. You see, if you're not content with little, you won't be content with much. You know, Rockefeller, the the richest man in American history in the early 1900s, he was asked once by a reporter, how much is enough? And he was worth like something like over billions of dollars. And in the early 1900s, that's a lot of money. And he was asked, how much is enough? And, and his response was simply this, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. So Paul's learned how to be content and being brought low, and he, he knows how to be content when he abounds, but he also mentions two other extremes in verse 12, right? What does he say there? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Plenty and hunger, abundance and need. These two extremes are, are more referring to his physical needs, he knows how to be content when he has plenty in regards to food, but he also knows contentment in regards to hunger. When he has abundance more than he needs and when he has legitimate need, he knows contentment. See, whatever circumstance is thrown at Paul, he's learned contentment. And as he pens this letter, he's sitting in a prison, possibly awaiting his death, and he's content. Now, Paul states here in verse 12 that he's learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances. But before we look at what that secret is, I want us to step back for a second and look at two things. One, what is the danger and sinfulness of discontentment? The danger and sinfulness of discontentment, and secondly, the virtue of contentment. So the danger and sinfulness of discontentment and the virtue of contentment. First, the danger and sinfulness of discontentment. 
I don't know if our hearts truly grasp just how dangerous and evil discontentment can be in our lives. Let's just look at the dangerous side first. Why is discontentment so dangerous, specifically in regards to your soul? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because discontentment usually leads to all other kinds of sin. Discontentment will lead you to grumble. Discontentment can lead to bitterness. Discontentment can lead to jealousy and envy, murder, adultery. I'm discontent with my spouse. Idolatry, discontent with God. You see, discontentment is is used to justify a whole lot of sins in our life. As Gracie read for us the the story of Sarai and and Hagar, Abram's wife was, was discontent with God's timing. God promised that she would conceive, but he did not say when. And she took matters into her own hands. And we know how that story goes. I've seen many professing Christians abandon the faith faith because of discontentment. And I'm not picking on you this morning, but I know several single women who have given up on God because they haven't found a spouse. They've become discontent in their singleness and and they become bitter with God. And in the end, they they walk away from the Lord because they feel as though the Lord has failed them. If God truly loved me, he'd give me a husband. But maybe it's precisely that God does love you that he hasn't granted you a husband. You see, if finding a husband is so important to you that you're, you're willing to forsake the Lord, then I would say you have an idolatry problem. You're swimming in idolatry and you expect God to grant you your idol. And and you know what? Sometimes God actually may grant you a husband. That he might shatter your idolatry as you discover just how unsatisfying a husband actually is. Men, we aren't that great. Israel was given over to idolatry in the wilderness because they became discontent with their circumstances. They grumbled against Moses, but as Moses said, you grumbled against God. You see, discontentment is the launching pad for all other kinds of sin in your life. And so we need to be aware of just how dangerous discontentment is, but we also need to be aware of how sinful discontentment is. It's not just dangerous, it's also evil in and of itself, and here's why. Discontentment in your circumstances is fundamentally discontentment with God. Discontentment in your circumstances is fundamentally discontentment with God. Israel's sin in the wilderness wasn't mere grumbling over their circumstances. They were grumbling over the fact that God placed them in such circumstances. God has, in his mysterious providence, granted your specific circumstances in life. And for all of us, our circumstances are different. Poverty, wealth, health, sickness, 
difficult marriage, a job you can't stand, a job you love. We have all been placed in different circumstances by God's mysterious providence. Now, I understand that there are things that we are still responsible. Some of us, we might be poor because we're unwise with our money. But God is still providentially overseeing our lives. And to be discontent in your circumstances is to say, God, you have failed me. Just as Israel believed that God had failed them. Discontentment is to declare, God, you haven't been fair to me. You haven't treated me the way I think I deserve to be treated. You see, deep down, discontentment is a manifestation of pride. And if you're a discontented person, you're probably a proud person. See, at the root, discontentment in our circumstances is saying, God, you're not enough. You're not enough. And that's idolatry. That's why discontentment is so sinful. So we've seen the danger of it. We've seen the the sinfulness of it. We also need to look at the virtue of contentment. You know, if you give some thought to the virtue of contentment, you'll discover that contentment is only possible if there are other virtues developed in your life. In other words, contentment must be preceded by specific virtues. And so if if contentment is a major struggle in your life, it's probably because you lack virtue and character in other areas of your life. See, contentment is only possible if you have patience. Patience is a virtue. You you need patience to be content. You need faith, real faith, trusting that God is for you, that that he's going to fulfill his promises in your life. You need humility to be content. You need hope, true hope that that all things are going to work out for your good. And you need peace. All of these are virtues that that the scriptures call us to, to emulate in our lives. All of these virtues are necessary for contentment. And if there's deficiency in these areas, you will be deficient in contentment. You know, there are many actions in life that will require one or two virtues in your life as a Christian. But with contentment, you you exercise many virtues at once. You know, as we looked two weeks ago, as, as joy in the Lord serves against the attacks of the enemy, so contentment protects you from the many temptations of the world. As Jeremiah Burroughs said, temptations will no more prevail over a contented man than a dart that is thrown against a brazen wall. Remember Paul's words to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6? Godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, Paul's whole emphasis in chapter 4 is that as Christ's people who have been saved by his blood, we must strive to be a virtuous people. And part of that means striving to be a contented people, no matter the circumstances, whether in abundance or loss, we're called 
to be content. You know, I, I can't tell you why God has allowed specific circumstances in your life. Why some of us struggle to have children and other, others of us are blessed with children. Why some of us find a spouse in our early 20s and some of us never do or at least much later in life. Why some of us experience wealth and other, others of us barely get by monthly. I can't explain why some of us have major health issues and others of us have overall good health. But here's what I can tell you. If you belong to Jesus, he's not out to harm you, but to transform you. And sometimes in his transforming you, it is necessary that he wound you. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9, it's a famous passage where Paul has this thorn in the flesh. He's been given all of these visions. He's, he's been taken up into the third heaven. And because of that, God is concerned, as he says in verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we don't know specifically what this thorn was. It was a messenger of Satan, but it had one task. Harass Paul. Harass Paul. But God had another task. What was the task? To keep him from becoming conceited. In other words, what you have here is God is concerned about Paul's holiness and he's willing to allow a messenger of Satan to harass him to keep him from becoming conceited. And look at verse 8. We see Paul. We see Paul's discontentment. Look, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. Paul didn't want it. He didn't want this thorn in the flesh. But God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God wounded Paul for the sake of his sanctification, for the sake of his transformation. And friend, God will do that with you as well. So we've seen Paul's contentment in all circumstances. We've pondered the danger and sinfulness of discontentment as well as the virtue of contentment. And now we need to ask, what's the secret that Paul speaks of? As he says in verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret to his contentment? The Stoic philosophers of Paul's day regarded contentment as the essence of all virtues. Contentment was the essence of all virtues to the Stoic philosophers. They believed that man must become independent of all things and all people, that he should be sufficient unto himself. Really, in a sense, indifferent to the things of this world. That's not what Paul thought when it came to the secret of contentment. Paul was not 
sufficient unto himself. He was not indifferent. You read Paul and you see a very emotional man. He's full of sorrow. He's full of joy. He's full of rejoicing. He's full of tears. He's full of love and anger. He had emotions, and, and those emotions were shown. And there's nothing wrong with that. See, the secret to contentment is not self-sufficiency or, or, or some kind of being indifferent, separating yourself from the world. Paul didn't believe in self-sufficiency, but Christ-efficiency. Many commentators have argued that the secret to Paul's contentment is verse 13. The famous verse that every athlete puts on their shoe. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I realize this verse is so often taken out of context, right? The athlete puts it on his shoe with, with the mindset that he can truly do everything it takes to win. But really, the, the context is, no, no, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is, win or lose, I can do all things. Win or lose, I can be content because Christ strengthens me. And so, many commentators have said that, that the secret to Paul's contentment is Christ who is strengthening him. They're not wrong. Contentment can only truly come through the strength that Christ provides, His grace working in our lives to face any and every circumstance. But I don't think the answer is complete. In light of the whole book of Philippians, I don't think it's enough to say that the secret to Paul's contentment is simply Christ strengthening him. See, the secret to his contentment is strength from Christ, but it's more than that. When you look at the whole letter, you discover that ultimately Paul's contentment is the sufficiency of Christ in his life. That Jesus Christ is actually enough. And I'm going to demonstrate this with two texts in Philippians. First is Philippians 3, 7 to 8. And the question is this, what's the secret to contentment in abundance? So when you're abounding, how do you be content? What's the secret? Look at chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Okay, so when Paul says, whatever gain I had, he's referring to, as we know, his past. Who he was as a Jew, but also his accomplishments as a Jew. He's saying, this was gain. I was abounding in this. But whatever gain I had from that, I now consider it to be loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. So, so here's Paul's logic. The secret to contentment in abundance is in comparing your abundance to the surpassing worth of Jesus and determining that abundance is loss. In other words, Christ so satisfies you with the infinite worth of himself that even abundance in your life you view as loss, as rubbish. 
There I am in the estate in Spain, and I'm enjoying it. And it's right for us to enjoy abundance. I'm enjoying it, and I'm thanking God for that estate. But it's so important that I also say to God, but you're enough. Take this estate from me. You are still enough. That will empower you to experience contentment in circumstances of abundance. But what's the secret to contentment in loss? We'll look at chapter 1, verse 21. Chapter 1, verse 21. We know this passage. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's in prison, possibly awaiting his near death. In other words, he's been brought low. He's experienced loss. He's in need. He's in circumstances that none of us would naturally want to be in. So how does Paul be content with the reality that death is at his doorstep and he's in a prison? By believing that though he die and lose everything this world can offer, he gains because Christ is his everything. In other words, an all-satisfying treasuring of Christ is the secret to contentment, both in abundance and in loss. In other words, the question for you this morning is simply this. Is Christ truly enough? Is all that he is and all that he's accomplished on your behalf enough? As I was studying this passage and thinking about virtue and sanctification, I, I came up with my own definition of sanctification. Hopefully it's not heretical. But listen to this. Sanctification is the lifelong discovery that everything in this world cannot satisfy but Christ alone. Sanctification is the lifelong discovery that everything in this world cannot satisfy but Christ alone. Spurgeon, reflecting on the fact that he had experienced the forgiveness of sin through Christ and had, and had gained Christ because of that, declared in his prayer to the Lord, send me sickness, poverty, losses, crosses, persecution, whatever you will, Lord. You've forgiven me and my soul is glad. Edward Payson, he was a congregational minister. I don't know much about him, but from finding out about this story, I, I definitely want to learn about him. Days before his death from tuberculosis, he wrote to his daughter, and this is what he said. Oh, what a blessed thing it is to lose one's will. Since I have lost my will, I have found happiness. There can be no such thing as disappointment to, to me, for I have no desires but that God's will might be accomplished. Christians might avoid much trouble if they would only believe what they profess, that God is able to make them happy without anything but himself. 
They imagine that if such a dear friend were to die or or such and such a blessing removed, they should be miserable, whereas God can make them a thousand times happier without them. To mention my own case, God has been depriving me of one blessing after another. But as every one was removed, he has come in and filled up its place. And now, when I am a cripple and unable to move, I am happier than I ever was in my life before or expected to be. And if I had believed this 20 years ago, I might have been spared much anxiety. Wow. I pray that we as a church will be like Job when God took everything from him, even his own children, and he cried out, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to not just believe intellectually, but to know experientially that Christ truly is enough. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.